Thanks. Uh, not very long ago, as you all recall, it was taken for granted that the uh, Iraq war would be the central uh, issue in the 2008 election, uh, as it was in the midterm election two years ago. However, it's uh, virtually uh, uh, disappeared off the radar screen, which has elicited some puzzlement among the uh, punditry. Uh, actually, the reason is not very obscure. It was cogently explained uh, 40 years ago uh, when the US invasion of South Vietnam was in its fourth year, uh, and the surge of that day uh, was uh, about to add another 100,000 troops to the 175,000 already there, uh, while South Vietnam was being bombed to shreds uh, at triple the level of the bombing of the North, and the war was expanding to the rest of Indochina. However, the war was not going very well, uh, so uh, uh, the former hawks were shifting towards doubts. Uh, among them, the distinguished uh, historian Arthur Schlesinger, maybe the most distinguished historian of his generation, a Kennedy advisor, uh, who when he and Kennedy, other Kennedy liberals, were beginning to reluctantly beginning to shift from uh, a dedication to victory to uh, a more uh, dovish position. Uh, and Schlesinger explained the reasons. He explained that. Uh, I'll quote him now, of course, we all pray that the hawks are right in thinking that the surge of that day will work, and if it does, we may all be saluting the wisdom and statesmanship of the American government in winning a victory in a land that we have turned, he said, to wreck and ruin. Uh, but the surge probably won't work uh, at an acceptable cost to us. Uh, so perhaps strategy should be rethought. Well, the reasoning and the uh, underlying attitudes carry over with almost no change to the critical commentary on the uh, US invasion of Iraq today. And it is a land of wreck and ruin. I've already heard a few words. I don't have to review the facts. Uh, the uh, highly regarded British polling agency, Oxford Research Bureau, has just updated its estimate of deaths. Their new estimate a couple of days ago is 1.3 million. Uh, that's excluding uh, two of the most violent provinces, Karbala and Anbar. Uh, on the side, it's kind of intriguing to uh, observe the uh, ferocity of the debate over the actual number of deaths. There's uh, an assumption on the part of the Hawks that if we only killed a couple hundred thousand people, it would be okay, so we shouldn't accept the higher estimates. You can go along with that if you like. Uh, uncontroversially, there are over two million uh, displaced within Iraq. Uh, thanks to the generosity of Jordan and Syria, uh, the uh, millions of refugees who have fled the wreckage of Iraq uh, aren't uh, totally wiped out. That includes most of the professional classes. But that welcome is fading uh, uh, because uh, Jordan and Syria received no, no support uh, from the uh, uh, perpetrators of the crimes in Washington and uh, uh, London, and therefore they cannot uh, accept that huge burden for very long. Uh, it's 
just want to leave those two and a half million uh, refugees who fled in even more desperate straits. Uh, the sectarian warfare that was uh, uh, created by the invasion, never, nothing like that had ever existed before, uh, that has uh, devastated the country, as you know. Uh, much of the country has been subjected to quite brutal ethnic cleansing and left in the hands of uh, warlords and militias. Uh, that's the primary uh, thrust of uh, the current counterinsurgency strategy that's developed by uh, the revered uh, Lord Petraeus, I guess we should describe him, considering how the way he's uh, treated. Uh, he won his fame by pacifying Mosul a couple of years ago. It's now the scene of some of the most extreme violence in the country. Uh, one of the uh, one of the most dedicated and uh, uh, informed journalists uh, who has uh, been immersed in the ongoing tragedy uh, near Rosen has just written an epitaph uh, entitled The Death of Iraq in the uh, main, very mainstream and quite important journal Current History. Uh, he writes that Iraq has been killed never to rise again the American occupation has been more disastrous than that of the Mongols who sacked Baghdad in the 13th century, which has been the perception of many Iraqis as well. Uh, only fools talk of solutions now, he went on. There is no solution. Uh, the only hap hope is that perhaps the damage can be contained. Uh, but uh, Iraq is, in fact, a marginal issue. And the reasons are the traditional ones, the traditional reasoning and attitudes of the liberal doves who all pray now as they did 40 years ago that the hawks will be right and that the U.S. will win a victory in this land of wreck and ruin and they're either encouraged or silenced by the good news about Iraq. And there is good news. Uh, the U.S. occupying army in Iraq, uh, euphemistically it's called the multinational force Iraq because uh, they have, I think, three poles there somewhere, uh, that uh, the uh, occupying army carries out extensive studies of popular attitudes. It's an important part of counterinsurgency or any form of domination. You want to know what your subjects are thinking. Uh, and it uh, released a report uh, last December. Uh, it was a study of uh, focus groups, and it was uncharacteristically upbeat. Uh, the report concluded, I'll quote it, that the survey of focus groups provides very strong evidence that national reconciliation is possible and anticipated, uh, contrary to what's being claimed. The survey found that a sense of optimistic possibility permeated all focus groups, and far more commonalities than differences are found among these seemingly diverse groups of Iraqis from all over the country and all walks of life. Uh, this discovery of shared beliefs among Iraqis throughout the country is good news, according to a military analysis of the results. Uh, Karen DeYoung reported in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. Well, uh, the shared beliefs are identified in the report. I'll quote DeYoung. Uh, Iraqis of all sectarian and ethnic groups believe that the US military invasion is the primary root of the violent differences among them and see the departure of what they call occupying forces as the key to national reconciliation. So those are the shared beliefs. 
according to the Iraqis then, there's hope of national reconciliation if the invaders uh, who are responsible for the internal violence, the other atrocities, if they withdraw and leave Iraq to Iraqis, uh, that's pretty much the same as what's been found in earlier polls, so it's not all that surprising. Well, that's the good news, shared beliefs. Uh, the report didn't mention some other good news, so I'll add it. Uh, Iraqis, it appears, uh, accept the uh, highest values of Americans. That ought to be good news. Uh, specifically, they accept the principles of the Nuremberg Tribunal uh, that sentenced Nazi war criminals to hanging for such crimes as uh, supporting aggression uh, and preemptive war it was the main charge against uh, von Ribbentrop for example, whose position was in the Nazi regime was that of Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. Uh, the tribunal defined aggression very straightforwardly. It's in aggression, in its words, is the invasion of its armed forces by one state of the territory of another state. That's simple. Uh, obviously, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan are textbook examples of aggression. And the tribunal, as I'm sure you know, uh, went on to uh, characterize aggression as the supreme international crime, uh, differing from only from other war crimes in that it contains within itself all the accumulated evil of the whole. So everything that follows from the aggression is part of the evil of the aggression. Uh, well, the good news from the US military survey of uh, focus groups is that Iraqis do accept the Nuremberg principles. Uh, they understand that sectarian violence and the other post-war horrors are contained within the supreme international crime committed by the invaders. Uh, I think they were not asked whether their acceptance of American values extends to the uh, conclusion of uh, uh, Justice Robert Jackson, chief prosecutor for the United States at Nuremberg, he forcefully insisted that the tribunal would be mere farce if we do not apply the principles to ourselves. Well, uh, needless to say, uh, US opinion shared with the West generally uh, flatly rejects the lofty American values that were professed at Nuremberg, uh, indeed regards them as bordering on obscene, as you could quickly discover if you try uh, experimenting by uh, suggesting that these values should be observed, as Iraqis insist. It's an interesting illustration of the reality, some of the reality, that lies behind the famous uh, clash of civilizations. Uh, maybe not exactly the way we like to look at it. Uh, there was a poll a few days ago, uh, really a major poll, just released, which found that 75% of Americans believe that U.S. foreign policy is driving the dissatisfaction with America abroad, and more than 60% believe that dislike, dislike of American values and of the American people uh, are also to blame. Uh, dissatisfaction is a kind of an understatement. The United States has become increasingly the most feared and often hated country in the world. Uh, well, that perception is in fact incorrect. It's fed by propaganda. There's very little dislike of Americans in the world, shown by repeated polls, and the 
dissatisfaction, that is the hatred and the anger, uh, they come from acceptance of American values, uh, not uh, rejection of them, and recognition that they are rejected by the U.S. government and by U.S. elites, which does lead to uh, hatred and anger. Uh, there's other good news that's uh, been reported by General, General Petraeus and uh, Ambassador Ryan Crocker. Uh, that was during the extravaganza that uh, was staged, staged last September 11th. Uh, September 11th, uh, you might ask why the timing? Well, a cynic might imagine that the timing was intended to insinuate the Bush-Cheney claims of links between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. They can't come out and say it straight out, so therefore you sort of insinuate it by devices like this. Uh, it's intended to indicate, as they used to say outright, but are now too embarrassed to say, except maybe Cheney, uh, that by committing the uh, supreme international crime, they were defending the world against terror. Uh, which in fact increased sevenfold as a result of the invasion, according to a recent analysis by ter terrorism specialists like Peter Bergen and Paul Cruikshank. Uh, Petraeus and Crocker provided figures uh, to explain the good news. Uh, the figures they provided on September 11th showed uh, that the Iraqi government was greatly accelerating spending on reconstruction which is good news indeed, and remained so until it was investigated by the Government Accountability Office, which found that the actual figure was one-sixth of what Petraeus and Crocker reported, and in fact a 50% decline from the previous year. Well, uh, more good news is the decline in sectarian violence. Uh, that's attributable in part to the murderous ethnic cleansing that, has, that Iraqis uh, blame on the invasion. Uh, the result of it is there are simply fewer people to kill, so sectarian violence declines. It's also attributable to uh, the new counterinsurgency doctrine, Washington's decision to support the tribal groups that had already organized uh, to drive out Iraqi al-Qaeda uh, to an increase in U.S. troops, and to the decision, the decision of the uh, uh, Sadr's Mahdi army uh, to uh, 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 consolidate its gains, to stop uh, direct fighting and work politically. That's what the press calls halting aggression by the Mahdi army. Uh, notice that only Iraqis can commit aggression in Iraq, uh, or, or Iranians, of course, but no one else. Uh, well, it's possible that uh, Petraeus' strategy and may approach the success of the Russians in Chechnya, where, I'll quote the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, uh, Chechnya, the fighting is now limited and sporadic, and Grozny is in the midst of a building boom, a building boom uh, after having been reduced to rubble by the Russian attack. Uh, well, maybe someday uh, Baghdad and Fallujah also will enjoy continue the quote, electricity restored in many neighborhoods, new businesses opening, uh, and the city's main streets repaved, as in booming Grozny. Possible, but dubious, uh, in the light of the likely consequence 
of creating warlord armies that may be the seeds of even greater sectarian violence, uh, adding to the accumulated evil of the aggression. Well, if Russians share the beliefs and attitudes of uh, uh, elite uh, liberal intellectuals in the West, then they must be praising uh, Putin's uh, uh, wisdom and statesmanship uh, for his achievements in Chechnya, formerly they turned into a land of wreck and ruin and are now rebuilding. Great achievement. Uh, a few days ago, the uh, New York Times, uh, the military and uh, uh, Iraq expert of the New York Times, Michael Gordon, uh, wrote a comprehensive review, first page comprehensive review, of uh, the options for Iraq that are being faced by the candidates. Uh, and he went through them in detail, described the pluses and minuses and so on. Uh, 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 interviewing uh, uh, political leaders, uh, candidates, uh, experts, uh, etc. There was one voice missing, uh, Iraqis. Uh, their preference is not rejected, uh, rather it's not mentioned, uh, and it seems that there was no notice of that fact, which makes sense because it's typical. Uh, it makes sense on the tacit assumption uh, that underlies almost all discourse on international affairs. Uh, the tacit assumption, without which none of it makes any sense, is that we own the world. And so what does it matter what other thinks, others think? Uh, they're uh, uh, unpeople, nice term uh, invented by British diplomat uh, diplomatic historian Michael Curtis. He's done a series of outstanding volumes on Britain's crimes of empire, uh, outstanding work, uh, therefore deeply hidden. So there are the unpeople out there and then there are the owners, that's us, and we don't have to listen to the unpeople. Un uh, that uh, conception, that uh, deeply rooted imperial mentality, uh, we find everywhere we look, constantly. Just pick out a couple of examples, more or less at random from the last few weeks. Uh, last month, uh, Panama uh, declared a day of mourning uh, to commemorate the U.S. invasion. It's under George Bush number one. Uh, the, uh, it killed uh, thousands of poor Panamanians when the U.S. bombed the El Chorillo slums, other poor areas. So Panamanian human rights organizations claim uh, we don't actually know because we never count our crimes. Victors don't do that, only the defeated. Uh, it aroused no interest here. There's barely a mention of the day of mourning. Uh, and uh, there was, it's, uh, well, there's also no interest in the fact that Bush one's invasion of Panama was a clear case of aggression to which the Nuremberg principles apply. And it was apparently more deadly, in fact, possibly much more deadly than Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait uh, happened a few months later. Uh, but it makes sense that there would be no interest in that because uh, we own the world and Saddam didn't. So the acts are quite different. It's also of no interest that at that time, of the time of Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, uh, the greatest fear in Washington was that Saddam would imitate uh, what the United States had just done in Panama, uh, namely install a client government and then leave. Uh, the main, it's the main reason why Washington blocked 
diplomacy in quite interesting ways uh, with almost complete uh, media cooperation. There's actually one exception in the US media. Uh, so, but that, none of this gets any commentary. However, it does merit a lead story uh, a few days later when the Panamanian National Assembly was opened by President Pedro Gonzalez, who's charged with, by Washington with killing two American soldiers during a protest against President Bush, number one, against his visit uh, two years after the invasion. Uh, the charges were dismissed by Panamanian courts, but they're upheld by the owner of the world, so he can't travel, and that got a story. Well, to take just one last illustration of the depth of the imperial mentality, uh, New York Times correspondent uh, Elaine Shalino, veteran correspondent, uh, writes that Iran's intransigence about nuclear enrichment appears to be defeating attempts by the rest of the world to curtail Tehran's nuclear ambitions. Uh, well, the phrase the rest of the world is an interesting one. Uh, the rest of the world happens to exclude uh, the vast majority of the world, namely the non-line movement, which forcefully endorses uh, Iran's right to enrich uranium, uranium in accordance with, its, uh, with it, the rights granted by its being a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. But they're not part of the world, even though they're the large majority, uh, because they don't reflexively accept US orders, and commentary like that is unremarkable and unnoticed. You're part of the world if you do what we say, obviously. Otherwise, you're unpeople. Uh, well, we might, uh, since we're on Iran, might tarry for a moment, uh, ask whether there's any solution to the uh, US-Iran confrontation over nuclear weapons, which is extremely dangerous. Uh, here's one idea. Uh, first point, uh, Iran should be permitted to develop nuclear energy, but not nuclear weapons, uh, as the Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, determines. A second point is that there should be a nuclear weapons-free zone uh, in the entire region, uh, Iran to Israel, including any U.S. forces uh, that are present there. Actually, though it's never reported, the United States is committed to that position. Uh, when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, it appealed to a U.N. resolution, Resolution 687, which called upon Iraq to uh, eliminate its weapons of mass destruction. That was the flimsy legal principle uh, uh, invoked to justify the invasion. And if you look at Resolution 687, uh, you discover that one of its uh, provisions is that uh, uh, the U.S. and other powers must work to develop a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East, including that entire region. So we're committed to it. And that's the second possible uh, 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 element of this proposal. The third element of the proposal is that the United States should accept the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, a position which happens to be supported by 82% of Americans, uh, namely that it should accept the requirement, in fact, the legal requirement, as the World Court determined, uh, to move, take, make good faith efforts to eliminate uh, nuclear weapons altogether. And a fourth proposal is that the U.S. should turn to diplomacy and it should end any threats against Iran. The threats 
uh, are themselves crimes. They're in violation of the UN Charter, uh, which bars the threat or use of force. Well, of course, these four proposals, again, Iran should have nuclear energy but not nuclear weapons. Uh, the, there should be a weapons-free zone throughout the region. Uh, the U.S. should accept the non-proliferation treaty. There should be a turn to diplomacy and an end to threats. Uh, these are almost unmentionable in the United States. Not a single candidate would endorse any part of them, and they're never discussed, and so on. However, the proposals are not original. Uh, they happen to be the position of the overwhelming majority of the American population. Uh, and interestingly, that's also true in Iran. Uh, roughly the same overwhelming majority accepts all of these proposals. Uh, but that's, the results are, come from the world's most prestigious polling agency, but not reported as far as I could discover, and certainly not considered. Uh, if they were ever mentioned, uh, they would be dismissed uh, with the phrase uh, politically impossible, which is probably correct. It's only the position of the large majority of the population, kind of like national health care, but not, uh, not of the people who count. So there are plenty of unpeople here too, in fact, the large majority. Uh, Americans are, share this property of being unpeople with most of the rest of the world. Uh, in fact, if the United States and Iran were functioning, not merely formal democracies, then this dangerous crisis uh, might be uh, readily resolved by a functioning democracy, I mean one in which public opinion uh, plays some role in determining policy, uh, rather than being excluded, in fact unmentioned, because after all they're unpeople. Well, uh, while we're on Iran, I guess might as well turn to the third member of the uh, famous axis of evil, North Korea. Now, there is an official story, read it right now, uh, is that uh, the official story is this, that after having been compelled to uh, accept an agreement on dismantling its nuclear weapons and, and the facilities, uh, after having been compelled to agree to that, North Korea is again trying to evade its commitments uh, its usual devious way. So the New York Times headline on this 10 days ago reads, uh, the United States sees stalling by North Korea on nuclear pact and the article then details the charges of how North Korea is uh, not going through with its responsibility. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not uh, releasing information that was promised to release. Uh, if you read the story to the last paragraph, and that's always a good idea, that's where the interesting news usually is when you read a <laughs> news story, but if you manage to get to the last paragraph, uh, you discover that it's the United States that has backed down on the pledges made in the agreement. Uh, the United States had, it would, had promised to provide a million tons of f fuel, and uh, what did I do? I couldn't see. I'm sorry. I should hurry up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just start screaming at me if I go on too long. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. just refused to supply it. It's refused only. It supplied only 85 percent of the fuel that it promised. Uh, and it was supposed to improve diplomatic relations, of course not doing that. Well, that's quite normal. You want to find out what's going on in the U.S.-North Korea uh, nuclear standoff, it's better, you have to go to the specialist literature, which is uniform on it, not, nothing hidden, and in fact sort of sneaks out in the small print in the press reports, as I mentioned. Uh, what you find is that uh, 
The North, I mean, North Korea may be the most hideous state in the world, but that's not the point here. Uh, its position has been pretty pragmatic. It's kind of tit for tat. The United States gets more aggressive, they get more aggressive. The United States moves towards diplomacy and negotiations, they do the same. So when President Bush came in, uh, there was an agreement, it's called the Framework Agreement, that had been established in 1994. Uh, neither the United States nor North Korea was quite living up to it, uh, but it was more or less functioning. Uh, at that time, North Korea, under the Framework Agreement, had stopped any testing uh, of long-range missiles. It had maybe one or two bombs worth of plutonium, and it was verifiably not making more. Uh, that was uh, when George Bush entered the scene. And now it has eight to 10 bombs, uh, long-range missiles, that's developing plutonium. And there's a reason. Uh, the Bush regime uh, immediately moved to uh, aggress in a very aggressive stance. Uh, the ax axis of evil speech was one example. Intelligence was released claiming that uh, North Korea was carrying out, uh, was cheating, had clandestine programs. So it's rather interesting that these uh, intelligence reports five years later uh, have been uh, quietly uh, rescinded as probably uh, uh, inadequate. The reason presumably is that uh, if an agreement is reached, there will be inspectors in North Korea and they'll find that this intelligence had as much validity as the claims about Iraq, so they're being withdrawn. Uh, well, North Korea responded to all of this by ratcheting up its uh, missile and weapons development. Uh, in September 2005, under pressure, uh, the United States did agree to uh, negotiations, and there, were, there was an outcome. Uh, September 2005, North Korea agreed to abandon, quoting, all nuclear weapons and existing weapons programs, and to allow international inspection. Uh, that would be in return for international aid, namely from the United States, and a non-aggression pledge from the U.S and an agreement that the two sides, I'm quoting, would respect each other's sovereignty, exist peacefully together, and take steps to normalize uh, relations. Uh, well, the United States, the Bush administration, had an instant reaction. It instantly renewed the threat of force. It froze North Korean funds and foreign banks. It disbanded the consortium that was supposed to meet to provide North Korea with a light water reactor. So North Korea, returned to its weapons and missile development, carried out a weapons test, and confrontation escalated. Well, again, under international pressure and with its foreign policy collapsing, uh, Washington returned to negotiations that led to an agreement which Washington is now scuttling. Uh, there's an earlier history, an interesting one. Uh, you recall a couple of weeks ago, there was a mysterious uh, Israeli bombing in northern Syria, never explained, but it sort of hinted that uh, this had something to do with uh, Syria building the nuclear facilities with the help of North Korea. It's pretty unlikely, but uh, whether it's true or not, there's an interesting background which wasn't mentioned. In 1993, uh, Israel and North Korea were on the verge of an agreement in which Israel would recognize North Korea, and in return, North Korea would agree uh, to terminate any weapons-related missile, nuclear, or other, uh, any weapons-related activity in the Middle East. That would have been an enormous boon to Israel's security, uh, but uh, the owner of the world stepped in, 
uh, Clinton ordered them to refuse. Um, of course, you have to listen to the master's voice. Uh, so that ended that. Uh, and it may be that there are North Korean uh, activities in the Middle East that we don't know about. Well, let me finally uh, return to the first member of the Axis of Evil, Iraq. Uh, Washington does have expectations, and they're explicit. Uh, they're outlined in a Declaration of Principles uh, that was uh, uh, agreed upon, if you can call it that, between the United States and the uh, US-backed, uh, US-installed Iraqi government, government under military occupation. The two of them issued the Declaration of Principles it allows U.S. forces to remain indefinitely in Iraq uh, in order to deter foreign aggression. Well, the only aggression in sight is from the United States, but that's not aggression by definition. Uh, and also to facilitate and encourage the flow of foreign investments in Iraq, especially American investments. I'm quoting. That's an unusually brazen expression of imperial will. Actually, it was heightened a few days ago when George Bush uh, issued another one of his signing statements declaring that he will reject uh, crucial provisions of congressional legislation uh, that he had just signed, uh, including the provision that forbids spending taxpayer money, I'm quoting, to establish any military installation or base for the purpose of providing for the permanent stationing of U.S. armed forces in Iraq or to exercise U.S. control of the oil resources of Iraq. Okay, shortly after, the New York Times reported that Washington insists, if you own the world, you insist, insists that the Baghdad government give the United States broad authority to conduct combat operations, a demand that faces a bu potential buzzsaw of opposition from Iraq with its deep sensitivities about seeing as a depend, being seen as a dependent state. It's supposed to be more third world irrationality. So in brief, uh, the uh, United States is now insisting that Iraq must agree to allow permanent U.S. military installations, provide the United, grant the United States the right to conduct combat in, uh, operations freely, and uh, to guarantee U.S. control over the oil resources of Iraq. Okay, it's all very explicit on the table. It's kind of interesting that these reports do not elicit any reflection on the reasons why the United States invaded Iraq. Uh, you've heard those reasons offered, but they were dismissed with ridicule. Uh, now they're openly conceded to be accurate, but not eliciting any retraction or even any reflection. Well, there's a lot more to say about good news, but. I was told to shut up, so I will uh, just say that uh, thinking about these things really does give some insight uh, into the famous clash of civilizations it's, uh, and its actual substance, uh, topics that really ought to be foremost in our minds, I believe. Thanks.
thank you to Professor Chomsky. Um, we're now gonna open it up to a question and answer period. Um, we have two mics um, at either end of the stage on the floor. If people who want to um, ask a question can line up, please, and we'll um, hopefully get as many of your questions in as we can. Professor Chomsky, I just want to thank you for uh, coming. And I, I wanted to ask you, um, it, I lost the train of thought that you were developing initially, and that was that there was a comparison historically um, with uh, Vietnam and how the wall wasn't going well to the modern time now with uh, what's happening with, with uh, Iraq. And I was just going to ask you to pick up that, uh, that train of thought that you're seeing. There was a, as things turned badly um, um, in, in Vietnam, and you were going to make a parallel to the... Uh, current thing that was happening in Iraq, and I was just going to ask you to... Well, um, the position of the uh, liberal doves uh, in, uh, in the case of Vietnam was very much like uh, what Schlesinger described. He put it eloquently. Uh, we all pray that the hawks will be right, that by increasing the level of violence we'll win, uh, even if we leave a land of wreck and ruin. doesn't matter much. Uh, but, uh, and if they win, we'll be praising the wisdom and statesmanship of our leaders, but it's costing us too much, uh, so it's probably not going to work. So therefore, we should look for another strategy. Uh, as uh, one other one, at the end of the war, 1975, Anthony Lewis, it was about at the critical, as far to the critical end of the media as you can discover, uh, reviewed the war, uh, he said that it began, the United States began with blundering efforts to do good. He didn't have to say that because that's a tautology. Whatever action the holy state undertakes is efforts to do good. Blundering, if it costs too much, that's probably a historically universal. Uh, the, uh, so it began with blundering efforts to do good, but by 1969, he said, namely about a year after the business community turned against the war because it was too costly, by 1969, it was clear that it was a disaster, uh, which was costing us too much. So therefore, we have to oppose it. Uh, this is uh, maybe not a nice thing to say, uh, but, if, but it's true, so if you don't mind, I'll say it. Uh, this is exactly the reasoning of Nazi generals after Stalingrad. It was the right idea, you know, but Hitler made a dumb mistake. They should have gotten rid of England before he invaded Russia or the other way around. Uh, so it's costing us too much, so now we're dubs. Uh, that carries over, you can read, every time you open a newspaper or an art, a journal, that's what you read. Uh, the hawks say, you know, if we keep uh, increasing the level of violence, we'll win. Uh, the doves say, we all pray that you're right, but it's not gonna work. Uh, and therefore, when it seems that the violence is being reduced, for the reasons I mentioned, the hawks are jubilant, and the doves either are quiet or they try to say, well, it's not really working. Uh, but of course, if it did work, we'd be praising your wisdom and statesmanship. Uh, that's the general attitude of intellectual elites. It's not the attitude of the population. So in 1969, when the first polls were finally taken, about 70% of the American population uh, described the Vietnam War as uh, not a mistake but fundamentally wrong and immoral. And those figures have remained up until the most recent studies, I think the last early 2000. 
Uh, but that's the unpeople, the people who matter, uh, the smart ones, the educated ones. Uh, their position is pretty much like uh, Arthur Schlesinger's. I should say to Schlesinger, another comment about Schlesinger, uh, when in the case of the Iraq war, he's about the only person that I can find among liberal intellectual elites who condemned the war on principled grounds. When the bombing of Iraq started, right away, the first day, he uh, wrote an article in which he said that uh, the, bomb, the day of the bombing of Iraq, he said, is a date which will live in infamy, quoting Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, on the day of Pearl Harbor, a date which will live in infamy as the United States follows the policies of uh, fascist Japan. That was Arthur Schlesinger this time, but you don't see that mentioned. Take a look at the obituaries, not that. His principled opposition to a war of aggression is unmentionable. His unprincipled opposition uh, as a liberal dove, that's hailed. That's a comment about ourselves, not the population, but the elite intellectual sectors that we ought to take pretty seriously. I mean, maybe suppose that uh, Petraeus' strategy works and the United States succeeds in doing what the Russians did in Chechnya. I mean, do we praise Putin for having destroyed Chechnya and now rebuild, uh, beginning to rebuild it? No. Do we praise him for the fact that they now have electricity and there's a building boom in Grozny after having, they turned it to rubble? I don't see that anywhere. I mean, with regard to others, we can keep to elementary moral principles. When we're talking about ourselves, it's not only unimaginable, it's considered outrageous. I mean, it elicits uh, horror and tantrums. It's an interesting fact about the reigning intellectual culture. And again, it's not just true of the United States, that's true throughout history. Doesn't mean it has to be true or that we should tolerate it. Um, does that get at what you were asking? Yeah. Uh, I only see one microphone. Oh, okay. I can you talk about the terms of the deal that Iran offered us shortly after 9-11, where they offered us everything we're now asking for, and we subsequently... I'm sorry, I can't hear. Maybe stand a little back from the microphone. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering if you could talk about the terms of the deal that Iran offered us shortly after 9-11, where they offered yeah. us everything we're now asking right. for, and we, we, didn't, right. we refused it, subsequently denied yeah. it. Yeah. It was, it was not right after 9-11. I mean, they were making moves even before that, but the major one, I think the one you're referring to, was in early 2003, uh, when uh, the uh, Khatami government, the moderate Iranian government, uh, offered the United States, uh, actually we now have the exact offer, you can find it on the Washington Post website, so no question about it. Uh, they offered the United States uh, 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 discussion and uh, negotiation on all outstanding issues, all nuclear issues, on recognition of Israel, uh, everything. Uh, that offer, the U.S. doesn't have formal relations with Iran, we reject, refuse to, so the offer was brought to Washington by uh, the Swiss uh, emissary, who's the mediator between Iran and the United States. Uh, the Bush administration received the offer and responded. Namely, they censured the Swiss emissary for bringing it. Okay, that was the end of that one. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Iran proceeded. In 2004, 
uh, Iran and the European Union entered into negotiations. Uh, and Iran agreed, rather surprisingly in my view, but they agreed to suspend uranium enrichment, which they're legally entitled to do, as the unpeople of the world recognize. Uh, uh, they suspended uranium enrichment. Uh, during the negotiations, and they wanted a quid pro quo, that the European Union should do something. And what they asked them to do uh, was to uh, uh, end uh, threats of force and violence against Iran. Okay. Well, the European Union couldn't do that because the owner of the world in Washington wouldn't permit it. Uh, so after a couple of years of negotiations and failure of the United States to provide, of the European Union to provide security guarantees, Iran withdrew and returned to enriching uranium. I read the reports of that and you'll see, okay, you can't trust the Iranians, you know, they're back uh, defying the world again. But that's what happened. Uh, and uh, the options could be pursued today. The positions that I read, which I think are pretty sensible, those proposals, happen to be the opinion of the overwhelming majority of people in both the United States and Iran. And they would probably end the crisis, at least mitigate it. But of course, you know, the people who take these positions in the United States, probably each person who answers in a poll must think I'm the only person in the country who thinks these crazy things. They've certainly never read it anywhere. They never see it anywhere. Uh, the polls, when they come up with results like that, as they regularly do, are just not reported. Uh, if these were matters of discussion, I think the percentage would not be like 75%, it would probably be like 90%. Okay, but that's one of the reasons why you have to keep from discussing it. Uh, yes, Professor. Um, I just wanted to see if we could turn our attention to a different tentacle of imperial power, and that's south of the border in. Uh, Chiapas and also in Oaxaca, Mexico, where I, uh, I personally just returned from a trip to uh, uh, Chiapas and what I was hearing before and then and since then is that the Zapatistan autonomous movement is facing a severe increase in paramilitary and military attack and there's a large attack threatening against these communities that I know have provided a lot of inspiration for many of the people in this room. And You're speaking of Oaxaca now. Uh, Oaxaca, but even now in Chiapas, there is an increase. In Chiapas, yeah. Have you heard of this, or do yeah. you know what? Can you comment yeah, on how I have we could? Actually, have friends down there. Yeah, actually, I was just happened to just be on a uh, a, 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 tel a documentary. I spoke a, I spoke to a group of uh, activists in Oaxaca recently at a meeting. So, yeah, I've been following. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what's going on in Chiapas, but in Oaxaca, yeah, it's been pretty miserable and brutal. Uh, the Mexican police are extremely brutal. Uh, when they're supported by the United States, there's no bounds. And uh, what's happened in Oaxaca is uh, pretty awful. Uh, Chiapas, I'm not sure, but probably will come. But, but we did, I don't know if you had a question. But. Um, I just was wondering if you had heard about the increased pressure that they're facing. And uh, unfortunately, they feel very abandoned by the international community currently, the Zapatistas specifically in the East yeah. Well, they're abandoned because it's not reported. I mean, in fact, uh, the Zapatistas survived uh, only because uh, they made very imaginative uh, use of, uh, of media like the internet. So they were able to garner public support, which uh, restricted the capacity of the federales, you know, the, the uh, Mexican army and police, who were basically terrorists, 
they restricted their ability with U.S. backing to just crush them. I mean, materially, they could have done it. But with a tremendous amount of international support, they had to back off. Uh, that happens over and over. International solidarity makes a huge difference. Uh, just to take another example, which is pretty stunning. Uh, in Bolivia, uh, which is a remarkable situation, uh, the, uh, in December 2005, they, they had the most democratic election I've ever heard of. Uh, certainly, you know, totally different from the charade that's going on here. Uh, there was a, oh, literally, it, it's a serious point and we should think about it. I mean, I don't have to talk about what's going on here, you know very well. In Bolivia, the overwhelming majority of the population, which happens to be indigenous, uh, for the first time in 500 years, uh, entered the political arena and succeeded in electing somebody from their own ranks with issues that everybody knew about and that were extremely important. Uh, the election wasn't uh, based on whether one of the candidates uh, shed a tear or, or you know, another one looks you straight in the eye or whatever it may be. The election was uh, uh, fought on issues like uh, cultural rights, like taking control of your own resources. I mean, things that really matter to people. Things that should, issues that it's only an enter the discussion here. And they elected a poor peasant from their own ranks. That doesn't happen. You know, this kind of election doesn't take place in the West, uh, but it took place. And uh, uh, Morales, who basically is a representative of the people, it's not, you know, it's not rule from above, uh, is proceeding with uh, those demands. Uh, he's bitterly condemned in the West as uh, authoritarian or dictatorial uh, because he's following the wishes of about 90% of the population as for example, when they move towards nationalization of oil. Bitterly condemned here as authoritarian and dictatorial, uh, failing to mention that, yeah, practically everybody supported it. Uh, the, uh, going back to the solidarity, this is, the, in Bolivia, they just didn't just go to the polls on election day and push a button like we're supposed to do. Uh, this is a constant struggle. The people who took part in winning the election had been struggling about this for years. And struggling, I mean, like Oaxaca, you know, getting killed by military, by the military, by the military and police, and so on, over real issues. Uh, the main one was in Cochabamba, where they were uh, uh, the government, the previous government, was following the instructions of the World Bank, and uh, the United States you know, lies behind it uh, to uh, privatize water. Well, you take an economics course, you know, you may learn a theorem which says that it's uh, good to privatize water because it does also wonderful things. And then there's what in economics is called an externality, uh, something we don't consider because it sort of messes up the model. Uh, the externality in this case is that people can't afford to buy it, so they <laughs> starve, but that's somebody else's business. Uh, abstractly, in some abstract world, it turns out that this works better. Well, the peasants of Cochabamba didn't accept it, and they struggled against it, and they succeeded in driving Bechtel uh, out of the country. It's better than we did here when Bechtel was robbing us blind on the big dig. It'll have to be rebuilt in a couple of years. Uh, they, uh, they drove them out, and uh, solidarity made a big difference. 
It happened that that struggle in Cochabamba was peaking at the time of a meeting of the regional uh, uh, groups of the World Social Forum in Washington. There was big demonstrations about the IMF and the World Bank. It happened to be at the same time. And again, with clever use of the internet, uh, activists in Bolivia were able to activate protests in Washington, in Seattle, in uh, California, where Bechtel is located, in, in London, you know, all over the place, uh, protests against the bank and uh, the corporations, and they drove them out. And that's part of the one part, important part of the move towards uh, the elections in Coach uh, that took place in Bolivia. So solidarity can, it not only can make a big difference, it can save people from destruction. I mean, if you take a look at the balance of military forces, I mean, if that's all that mattered, it's obvious what would happen in the world. You know, Nazism would look gentle. Uh, what prevents it is uh, a popular engagement to prevent predatory and violent institutions, states and private, from uh, doing what they want. And the same was true in Chiapas, and it ought to be true in Oaxaca, but unfortunately it isn't, because people don't know about it. I'm giving a presentation next. My name is Carl Kurtz. And uh, Bikes Not Bombs was founded at the time of the Reagan era. And recently in the media, this, uh, this icon of the past has risen again. And he's lauded to by the Republicans who hold debates in the Reagan Library, as well as the Democrats. And uh, remaking of this ethical conservative uh, is really repugnant to me. And I wish that you could comment on this and give us a little historical background of could, what's to expect back, from the Reagan doctrine. Back off a little bit from the microphone. Sorry. I, I didn't catch everything. If you get too close to the microphone, I can't hear. Got it. Yeah. Um, Mike. My question or my um, request is for, can you hear me now? Um, my request is that you elaborate on the remaking of the image of Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah, that's and, interesting. And the, the history coming forward today, um, right. Bikes Not Bombs was sort of born at this time right. of the Reagan doctrine. Yeah, uh, Bikes Not Bombs, I think, is 1984. Yep. Is that correct? 1984? Yeah. In 1984 was an important year in Nicaragua. They, uh, they had a democratic election, a free democratic election very carefully monitored, international monitors, uh, British parliamentary uh, human rights inquiry, uh, Irish uh, government uh, parliamentary inquiry, the uh, Dutch government, which is very hostile to the Sandinistas, had an official inquiry. The Latin American Studies Association, this professional group of Latin American scholars, uh, not only went to monitor the election, but uh, they sent specialists who'd done field work in Nicaragua there for several weeks beforehand. They all reached the same conclusion. It was a very free and fair election. Uh, the Sandinistas won the election. Okay, they're unpeople, remember. So the position of the U.S. government was the election didn't take place. And approximately 100% of the media took the same position. Uh, in fact, they staged a way of trying to drive the election off the front pages. Uh, they staged a... Uh, 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 a delivery, an alleged delivery of MIGs, Russian MIGs, to Nicaragua right at the time of the election. And uh, the, of course, front pages are Russians delivering MIGs to Nicaragua, you know, threat to the United States, uh, 
fact, not long after Reagan called, uh, declared a national emergency because of the threat to the security of the United States posed by the government of Nicaragua, uh, which you'll remember was only two days away from Harlingen, Texas. I mean, we're just about to be destroyed by these hordes. And the media went along and commentary went along. I mean, some were skeptical. They said, well, maybe, like our senator, Paul Tsongas, liberal senator, said, well, you know, maybe they really aren't sending MiGs. But if they are, we got Obama. Uh, because obviously we can't allow MiGs to be in a country like Nicaragua, which could destroy us if they, if they try. Uh, okay, that took care of the election. Incidentally, why would Nicaragua want MiGs? Of course, it was all a fraud, but why might they have wanted MiGs? This really shows you something about the imperial mentality. I mean, any conceivable reason. In fact, Nicaragua had requested jet planes from France, but the U.S. Uh, barred that. They did not want Nicaragua to have planes from a Western ally. They wanted them to get them from Russia. That's an old trick. That's the way they overthrew the government of Guatemala force them, threaten them with an attack, try to get them to defend themselves, block any help from your allies, compel them to go to your enemies, then present them as a threat to our existence. I mean, if somebody's watching this from Mars, they think the country's insane. Now, how could the Nicaraguas be two days from Harlingen, Texas? But, you know, it cells here among educated people. Anyway, in fact, they did need, need airplanes, namely to protect their airspace. The U.S. had total control of their airspace. Uh, it was using it uh, to uh, s support the Contras, the mercenary forces that were using to carry out terror in Nicaragua, which were you know, the most, uh, uh, not like ordinary guerrillas. I mean, they had computers, they had planes up in the, they had, uh, CIA planes, which were sending them signals, telling them where the Nicaraguan army was so that they could attack soft targets, undefended civilian targets, actually official policy. Uh, so yeah, they wanted to protect their airspace, but they knew that they better not get jet planes or the United States will go berserk. Uh, anyway, that did knock the election off the front pages. Everything you read says the first election was in 1990. Uh, that one was okay because after battering